0: Hey guys, welcome back to the MindBlood Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) I know, it's a different tone. I kind of sound sad. I'm not sad. But for this episode, I kind of want to take a different approach and have an open discussion or an investigation, a thought, if you will, on relationships through a different lens, a different focus. Last week I talked about relationships and how it's important to build on those real relationships that you have in your life. You should root yourself in love, the unconditional love that you have for each and every person around you. Learning to live, love, laugh, and learn through each and every moment that you have available to you with those loved ones. And for this episode, I kind of want to piggyback on that. And talk about something that we all don't usually want to talk about. It's the idea that what happens once the people that you love the most aren't there anymore? It's the most paralyzing, most painful, the most heart-wrenching thing that anyone will ever have to go through. It's like when you lose someone close to you, it's very easy to get lost in that loss. And for today's episode, I kind of want to zero in and focus here on the idea of being lost in loss. If you ever lost a loved one, it's like it hits you. In, in waves. It's like you're on the ocean and you're being constantly hit by a tidal wave. Tidal wave just hitting you, boom, beating you, battering you. And every breath, every step you take in this life, it's like you're just trying to stay above water, you're just trying to stay afloat, just trying to bob your head for air. While people may think you're living your normal life, you're just trying to survive. Because the reality of losing someone, it's it's suffocating, it's so debilitating, it's unbearable. And it affects every individual in so many different ways. The one thing I know about grief is that it's extremely patient. Like grief says, not now, but once you're ready... Grief is waiting, and it's waiting on you. That grief can resurface in some of the weirdest times. It's uncontrollable. Last week, I talked about how I'm the fixture in relationships because I naturally want to be in control. But when people pass, you're not in control of anything. That's a different type of pain coming from a fresh, open wound of that loss. A wound that doesn't heal over time. Time doesn't heal this type of wound. This pain lives with you for the rest of your life. I know it does for me. And through this grieving process, I think the most important thing that helps me This connection. Connection with others. Connection with my story. Connection with speaking it out and getting it off my chest. It's like no matter how irrational my thoughts are, it's important to talk it out, to write it out, to pray it out, and to seek help. Like your grief should be shared, not judged. When someone we love passes, we don't move on. I think we move forward. And the way we move forward is leaning into that pain and telling our story. Now, if you're listening, the one thing I want you to focus on when you're listening to my story is how the mind bully manifests and uses guilt in each stage of my story. If you're listening, I want you to pay attention to the sequence of events because it's extremely valuable to see how the mind bully uses normal occurrences and tries to trick you into thinking that you are in control of a tragic situation. As I share the defining moment in my life, I believe that you can find the defining moment in your life in my story, the moment where you feel powerless The moment that was out of your control. The moment that your heart yearns to relive. The moment in which you feel like you could have done more. So, without further ado, episode seven. Senior year. Senior year at Texas Tech. Now, a lot goes on when you're a senior. Senior. I feel like you're, every senior is thinking of two things. One, let's graduate. Let's have a good GPA. Get my job lined up for the future. And two, social life. Like let's get lit. like Let's be outside. Let's live, love, and learn through these experiences that we will never relive again. Let's have a blast. Fortunately for me, I broke my foot. I say fortunately because, you know. God has a reason for everything. But I broke my foot and I was awarded another, an extra year. So I already graduated. So number one on my list to graduate was already off the list. So number two, I was outside. It's time. It's time to live out a social life like a regular college student. I'm a college basketball athlete at the time. And all we know is work, work, work for obviously our goals. But hey, I'm outside. I have the chance to take advantage of being free. So it's August. And this is my last preseason before locking in for our next season. I am so excited and so lit because one of my cousins, actually, my younger cousin had just transferred to Texas Tech. So, you know, like people that know in Texas, there's a battle between which schools are better. And I'm always like, Texas Tech, yeah, this is where it's at. It's popping, it's lit, it's fun, it's a great time because I love the city. And so when he comes, I'm like, okay, it is on me to be his ultimate tour guide for the little time I have till the season to show him that, hey, he made the right choice of coming to come into the double T. And he looks, his name's Sosa. He looks Sosa. So. Obviously, I'm his older cousin. I got to show him, put him on, basically. So, I took the challenge. I accepted that challenge. And in the preseason, we would always, me and my boys and my friends, we'd always go to the tailgates before football games. And if you know anything about the Red Raiders tailgates, they are lit. I'm talking about mamas, sisters, brothers, aunties, uncles, little locals, randoms, just having a blast before the game. And if they choose to go to the game or not, they do some extracurriculars, but that's on them. But we had that time of our lives. I mean, Sos would come with us to the tailgates, me and my friends, and he was like, dang, okay, okay, the the double T got something. And after a couple games, he's like, all right, I love this place. So as weeks go by, I kind of leave him be because he's finding friends, he's finding community, and he's having a blast getting to know his city and the school that he's now enrolled in. And me, I was still on my little social binge. I actually had now found a girl that I was into that I couldn't stop talking about. Sidebar, this girl's the same girl that I've been talking about. No, it's not like this full court press after this person. It's just like she was the closest person to me in the most impactful year of my life. So, I feel like she comes up a lot in my mind and my story. But, anyways, for me, it's getting serious with this girl. And what do you do when, in your mind and your heart, you feel some type of way, but you like, eh, am I tripping? Am I just, is it just cuffing season? Like, what should I do? For me, I hit up my boys, my brothers, the closest people to me, and been like, hey, y'all, check the Carfax on this girl. What y'all think? And I tell her the qualities. I I tell the closest people around me about the girl I'm into. And for me, the closest people around me were what we call the September boys. Now, the September boys consist of four people. Me, my twin brother, and my two other cousins, which are basically my brothers. I say this because me and my brother were born September 14th. My cousin, O.T., was born September 9th, my cousin Bosa was born September 8th, same year. My cousin OT, actually, when he came from the hospital, he came exactly to my house and we were raised together the first couple weeks. And even with him moving to London, Nigeria, Boston, New York, we've kept that same connection all throughout our lives. So I hit up the September boys, and I'm like, hey, emergency press conference. Emergency. I got this little girl I'm into. What y'all think? Do you know what these boys do? They don't even reply. Like, they don't even reply. I had to call OT, and I was like, did you not see my message? He was like, oh, yeah, and we talked about it a little bit. But he was like, hey, uh, I'm looking at your schedule, and you play at MSG. And then he puts – Norm plays at MSG against Duke. Who trying to pull up? Now everybody replying. Like, forget my little love dilemma. They trying to see some who. I understand. And at this point, this is the Duke team that's people think that can beat the Cavaliers. Like they have Zion Williamson, R.J. Barrett. It's a whole scene. My cousin OT lives in NY at the time. He's like, all right, this is easy. We can talk about your little girl, when you come. But make sure I have hot seats. And that was what we agreed upon. I made sure they had courtside seats to the Duke game. Fast forward to December, and Duke's not the only great team. We a problem. Like, the Texas Tech Red Raiders are a problem. So this showdown just got that much more valuable. He's like, thanks for these seats, bro. This is about to be a crazy game. My cousin Bosa flies up from Texas in OT, Comes from his backyard in NY and was able to be courtside for the MSG game. Come tip off, this game is rocking. I mean, so many Tech fans, so many Duke fans. An exciting back and forth down to the wire type game. I see my cousin OT and Bosa during the game jumping, screaming, spitting, flailing, just having a blast. We ended up coming up short and I was pissed. I was livid. I run back to the locker room and I lit a new one in everybody, including myself. Here's a team that was unranked going against the Duke Giants, but I didn't give a damn about any of that. We played so well coming up and we just turned the ball over and had so many mistakes. I was pissed off. I was pissed off. So after that, I went to the hotel and my cousin OT and Bosa met me in my room. They screamed like, yeah, they lit. Like, oh, that was an awesome game. And I'm pissed. Like, I'm like, bro, I don't care what y'all saying about it. I don't want to go out. I don't want to do none of that. Like, and if anybody knows the September boys, they always have a way of making light of every situation. I remember Kyler Edwards was my roommate and, these guys would not stop jumping, screaming, and trying to make me laugh because they know me. They know when I'm locked in and I'm angry, it's done. So I was really about to stay in. I caved. I caved. OT made a face, did something funny, and I was like, all right, we out. We out. I'm with my boys, the September boys, my brothers. Let's celebrate this time that we have together. He came from Dallas. He lives in NY. I'm in Lubbock. Let's have a good time. So we go out that night. OT was able to meet some great people in Lubbock. And he's like, damn, I like your people. I like your tech fans. They're great, good people. I'm going to have to pull up and see him again and meet this girl that you keep talking about. So I'm like, let's do it. And we literally start planning the next game that he can show up for. He has a great childhood friend in Makai Mason that plays at Baylor. And he's like, all right, bet. I'm pulling up. You guys play Baylor. February 16th, can you leave me some tickets at will call so I can, one, see you play and two, meet this girl that you won't stop talking about? Done. It was set up. That boy got a little taste of Lubbock NNY. He's like, all right, that's enough. I got to pull up. I end up extending my flight and staying a couple more days with the September boys so I can enjoy that time before I'm back with my team continuing our great season. Fast forward to the week of the Baylor game, the big game, the game where OT was pulling up to see the boy play. The interesting thing about this week was it has ramped up for me with this girl. In my mind, this girl was someone that I was willing to take the next step on. I don't know what that next step was, but for me, in my mind, I'm like, all right, I'm locked in. And obviously, the game September 16th, two days before that, is Love Day, February 14th, Valentine's Day. So it was a big week for the kid. I had a lot going on. I had two things on my agenda. One, make sure my girl feels special on Valentine's Day in a way that I haven't showed her before. Two, make sure OT feels that same Lubbock love that he did in NY. Get this dub and have a blast with my cousin. So for the first task, I didn't need any help. It was just me. It was now Valentine's Day. My girl had left town, I think, and I was able to get into her house. I'm not a burglar. She left the keys. But I was able to get into her house and bake her like cheesecake. I'm a cheesecake connoisseur. I can make cheesecakes, whatever. But I made her like cheesecakes. I wrote her a letter, got some different gifts, left her on her bed to surprise her before she got back from out of town the next morning. In my eyes, task one was going pretty well. Now, for task number two, I needed some help. I couldn't do it alone. I needed some extra oomph. If I know OT, I know this. He a turn-up guy just like me. I need people in the city to help me influence this guy and make sure his time is fun. So how did I do that? I called up little cuz, Sose, who's now new in Lubbock, but he know he stayed true to love it. He loves it now. He knows all the little spots. He knows how to make sure he has a great time while I lock in for this Baylor game. Now stay with me here. It's still Valentine's Day and my cousin is supposed to land at two o'clock. He texts me that morning with a screenshot of his flight information and says, should I hoe? Basically showing me the money that he can get from taking the later flight and not coming on his initial flight i'm like nah bro we planned this like bro he's like and i quote yo i'm getting in at midnight now i could uber to your crib never mind i folded really tried to change it and it was too late you owe me five hundred dollars and i'm like head ass i'll be there at two though to pick you up so fast forward i pick him up at two And we're having a great time. I mean, we're talking about my girl. We're talking about the game. We're calling Sosa and been like, bring your ass over here. Your cousin in town, let's let's be with each other. But Sosa's in class. So me and OT are in my living room. And he's like, you know what? Tonight, we don't have to go out. We could just chill. And before he could even get it out, I'm like, nah. You're not coming to my city and not doing something every single night. Like, I'm trying to showcase the city, trying to show him a good time. So we wait for Sosa to get out of class. And Sosa's like, hey, let's pull up to Mesquites. It's this bar that he likes. And he's like, I think he'll like it. I like it. Let's pull up. So I was like, bet. We found a move. Cool. So I started hitting people up that were in New York with OT so he could be comfortable. And they're like, shit, we going to Mesquites too tonight. So I was like, yes, it's about to be a movie. The only thing that I didn't like about this movie was that, I couldn't stay. I had a massage the next morning, so I was going to leave Mesquites at midnight. And so we head to Mesquites. Sosa's going to meet us there. We get there and O.T. and Sosa reunite, their cousins, obviously, and we're just having a great time. I look at my watch and it's now 12 and I'm like, damn, the the time them flew. I'm with my boys. I'm with my people. OT is now seeing some familiar faces that he saw at the Duke game, and he's like, oh, yeah, I like it here. So I'm like, hell, yeah, mission accomplished. Task two, check. And it's time for me to leave. One, I have this massage, and two, I want to hear my girl's reaction when she sees what I did in her house. So I huddle OT and Sosa and say my goodbyes. Now this next moment, is a moment that burns in my soul, in my mind, in my heart I think for the rest of my life it's the pivotal moment it's the mistake it's the moment that I wish that I can take back the moment that my heart yearns for to replay and redo again I give Sosa a hug then I give OT a hug and OT walks me out the front door of Mesquite's. And it's a joyous moment. He's like, you're good. We're fine. Like, I'll call an Uber. And I say, if you need anything, call me. Then I send him the gate code and the address to my house. And I went home. Not knowing that that would be the last time I ever see my two cousins again. About three hours after I left on their way home, they were hit by an 18-wheeler, and they both didn't make it. <sighs> now, now, me at this time, I had no clue. The next morning I woke up, I went to the facility, and I'm telling everyone, like my cousins in town, I'm so excited, I'm telling them about the week that we about to have. And they're like, where is he? And in my mind, I have his location. It's somewhere by Sosa's house. And I'm like, he's probably with a girl. They're probably, you know, long night, new city. He's somewhere having a good time. Fast forward a couple hours, and now it's time for practice, and I still haven't seen him or heard anything from him. I'm literally walking to the locker room, and my phone starts going off. It's all Sosa's friends. They're like, have you seen Sosa? Have you seen Sosa? And I'm like, no, nah, I haven't heard from him either. And so I quickly look at the location to see if it's at the same place. And now both their locations are at the Lubbock Police Department. So I'm like, that's weird. Like, I drop everything and I get in my car and drive. I'm thinking I'm going to bail them out for a disorderly conduct, something of that nature. And on the drive there, I get a call from Bosa, the September boy, and who's also Sosa's older brother. He calls me, and he goes, Sosa and O.T. died. The officers went to his house to try to ID the body, and the first contact was his older brother, and they called him, and, and that's how he told me, and I mean, I could have crashed at that moment. I was screaming. I was crying. I was flailing. I was so pissed off at myself. Like, the only thing I said for the next 15 minutes was, I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. Like, the thought that I could have two family members come to my city for me in that moment, and I have that happen to them. I didn't think I belonged to be breathing. At that moment, or sometimes even now, I don't think that I'm the one that should be left here. For me, it's keep the family close. It's three for three or none of us. Why is it two for three that went? Why is it not me? I'm a fucking idiot is how I feel. And honestly, I'm kind of getting pissed off again because this is how on and off this thought flows. I don't even know how to close this story because he really pisses me off when I really think about it. Like this is how guilt and grief has impacted my life in this way. I'm driving towards the police station thinking I'm about to see my two cousins again. And I get this news. I lose control of the vehicle. I'm mashing the steering wheel, swerving. Luckily, I'm in an open lane. And I don't know why, but I called my coach and I'm just screaming everything that I said before. And my coach, Coach Beard, is trying to calm me down. He's like, what do you need? Do you need anything? What do you need? What do you need? And I'm like, I don't know what I need. I just knew I needed my cousins to be there in that moment and they weren't. And I felt responsible for that. I asked for Keenan and Andrew to be there with me at the police station because I know It'd be tough to handle that alone, but another part of me was like, "No, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. What? Look what I just did with people that I loved just a day ago." But anyways, I get to the police station, and now Sosa's friends, all of them, are there. It's a big scene. They put us all in this room, and it's like, as each and every one of his friends walks up to the room, and they hear the news, it's like a bad movie playing over and over and over and seeing the reactions of people that also now have lost a loved one. I'm in there fielding questions from not only his friends, but now family members that heard the news and are calling from all over the world. I probably answered a hundred calls, and this exact moment was a culmination of my life crashing down right in front of me. Fast forward to after the police stuff. I went home and I obviously couldn't sleep. I did not sleep that entire night. And I'll never forget, I was sitting downstairs in my house in our couch and I could not go upstairs because all my cousin's stuff were still in my room. Like, he's going to come back. And I would just sit there all night and think And the only thought in my head, the only one was, I'm a fucking idiot. I'm sorry, guys. This is a lot of curse words, but it's kind of hitting, a, obviously, a sore spot for me. And this is exactly how I felt in that moment. But I sat there all night going from denial to tears to anger, just thinking about what I let happen under my watch. I had the guilt that I didn't see it coming, the guilt that I set it up, the guilt that I called my cousin to be there for me, the guilt that he came from New York for me, the guilt that I told him to stay on that initial flight and not take the later one. The guilt that I made him go out to Mesquites that night because I wanted to show him my city, the guilt that I didn't stay with him, the guilt that I didn't pick up the phone late at night when he needed me in that time. Fast forward to the next day, we have a team meeting. I walk into the team meeting and the first person I see is my cousin Sosa's childhood friend who's on my team, Kyler Edwards. And I just break down crying and I'm hugging and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Like the mind bully is using that guilt and I'm walking in it and wearing it as I'm interacting with others. But again, for me, it's like I could not get over what had just happened. Like, why am I the only one still here? How can some young males, young, with so much life, so much love in them, so much heart to live, just be be gone just like that and me still be here? Like I felt guilty for living. And when I saw a friend of his, it was like an instant trigger. Like, I couldn't do it. Like, I cried the entire time. I ended up leaving the meeting to just go back home to sit in my living room in my little chair. Hours passed now, and I'm still sitting there, blank, expressing, just not even thinking about anything. I'm just honestly paralyzed. At this stage, I'm not the only person in the room. My friends are there, my girls back in town now, and they're just filling the room with love and the presence that I needed in that moment. It's like nobody was interacting with me or talking, but I just needed them in the same room as me. Like, come to think of it, I needed them there for me, I was shattered. But it's this weird feeling that my body is wanting them to be there, that loves that presence. But my mind, the mind believes like I don't deserve love. I don't deserve happiness. I don't deserve this friends and my girl being there to console me and love me in that way that I need because I couldn't take care of the loved ones that showed up for me. I was torn. It was a weird, eerie feeling being in that room. Fast forward to game day, and there was never a doubt for me that I was going to play. Like, I couldn't really voice that I was going to play. I was paralyzed, like I said, but in my mind, they came to watch me play. How dare I not finish the mission? How dare I not play because of what happened? How dare I? He came to watch me play, and I'm not going to play. Like, it it didn't make sense, so I, I don't know if I even muscled my way through it. I didn't. I couldn't think of anything, but what just happened? I didn't give a damn about anything else, but I showed up and I played because it's my, in my mind, it's like complete dismissal for me and my team and, and for them. Now, fast forward to game time, and I mean emotional is an understatement. They do a moment of silence before the game and then I can't hold back my tears. I'm crying. And the one thing, the one thing that kept playing on my head is, how could I? How could I? I start looking at the family section once we break up the huddle, and I'm like, that's where they were supposed to sit. How could I? How dare I? And I was just lost in the pain of my loss. We win the game, a highly spirited game. I appreciate the guys for playing for me and my family, but after the game, I meet up with my cousin OT's friend that he was coming to see as well, Makai Mason, and we just cry, and we can't hold back our tears. At this point, both the Baylor team and our team huddle around us, and we say a prayer for every single person that was affected because of this tragedy. Now, I don't know how to close this story, to be honest. I don't want to ramble. I guess I want to say the the pain from grief and the pain from that guilt, rather, is something that still steers me in my life today. I'm lost in that loss currently. I'm still grieving. And I don't know how long this grieving period will last. I think it will last my whole entire life. But I never want this story to end. I never wanted it to end. So I don't even know how to stop talking about this right now. But if there's one thing I want you guys to take away is. It's how to deal with grief and how to deal with guilt in that grief and how to deal with that pain. Because although I don't know ABC how to deal with that pain, I know what I turn to and I know who I turn to to help. Me deal with that pain. Now, personally. What helps me with grief and dealing with this loss is writing letters or writing tweets or just giving voice to the sound of my heart. It's just like I internalize so much that whenever I can just get it out, get out that thought or get out that burning topic on my head, it's it helps me in that moment. I want to refer back to a tweet that I posted kind of some years ago. And honestly, hopefully this doesn't sound weird, but I take little notes and I go back to them when I feel down or I feel sorrow or I feel sadness to kind of pick me up. And hearing my own words and seeing my own writing on paper, it's like, it reminds me of the mind frame or the mind, the state of mind that I was in. And it's not just words. I kind of attach my thoughts and my feelings and my words and my, my mindset to where I was in that moment. So I'll read this tweet now. It says, without a doubt, this past year was the worst slash most challenging one yet. I've experienced things that I never would have imagined. I've allowed guilt and other dark thoughts to roam in my head. I've cried endlessly at random times, questioning God as to why some of these things had to occur. And yet, he is still faithful. You see, the hardest lesson I had to learn in 2019 was the love of God is not always proven by the way I feel his presence. The love of God is proven with how I deal with his perceived absence. Even when he didn't do what I wanted him to do, that doesn't change my understanding of who he is. I'll continue to praise him for who he is and not for what he does. And then I go, I say, so in 2020, when disappointment comes, how will you handle it? I said, I'll remain focused and faithful because I believe in who he is and not on my own perception of what I think he's going to do for me. Now, if I'm being honest, I think that's a great message. I think that's a, a, a awesome thing to say. But honestly, when it goes with grief and sorrow and pain and guilt, I don't think none of that shit applies. Yes, he is still faithful. Yes, I'm still focused, but. It's the idea that this type of pain and grief hits you in waves and hits you harder than ever at some times. It's like, I, it's hard to go back to something like this and keep quoting it. It's like a, I need a deeper intervention with my Lord and Savior. It's a deeper outpouring of love that I need in those type of moments. It's the idea that I can be walking on the street and I hear a voice or I hear a sound or I remind it I'm reminded of a thought or I see something on, on a billboard that reminds me of the loved ones I lost and instantly I can go to a deep dark place and feel sorrow and feel guilt and feel judgment and feel pain and feel this lack of love. There's no tweet. There's no saying. There's no words that anybody can say to me in that moment that can change how I feel. And those feelings are real. Now, in those moments, I can choose who I'm going to be mentored by. And this is the toughest. I believe this is the toughest, toughest, toughest thing I can't even say to myself right now, but it's the truth. Whose voice will I be mentored by in those moments? When the mind bully is building, and honestly, rightfully so, there's so many things it's saying to me, bringing up. Am I going to be mentored by my feelings and my thoughts? Or am I going to be mentored by who I know God to be in my life? Even when things don't make sense, even when things don't add up, even when I'm pissed off and I'm mad and I'm broken, who am I going to be mentored by? Because I think those moments represent moments in all of our lives, moments that pose as the toughest challenges. Internally that we will ever face. It's the hardest, the hardest thing to turn the other cheek or turn to a brighter thought or to turn to a, a different perspective when you lose a loved one. And honestly, I don't think I'm saying that. I just think that. It's imperative that we feel every feeling we need to feel to get to that view or that lens of a different perspective, other than the mind bully building and beating and battering and bashing and crushing you in those real moments. I wish I had real takeaways. I wish I had real meat behind the bone. I wish I had real life lessons and real life teachings that I can tell about grief. But the, the reality is I don't. I don't have a one, two, three. I don't have a this, that, and the third. I don't have a practical tip to instill in your life today for you to overcome grief. I don't have it because I can't do it in my own life. I don't know how. I don't know how, I don't have control. Some moments I just break down, I cry and I question and I just, I don't know how. The only thing that I can say and the only thing that I can showcase is the moments when I don't know how, who I turn to. It's no man, it's no mind Bully. it's no thought, it's no action. It's no reaction. It's no outburst. It's no yearning for something bigger. It's Christ. It's God. And it's no fluff. It's none of that. I go right to Christ because He is the only one in those moments and in my life that can pick me back up, dust me right off. And have me follow in with a different perspective and a different lens. I'm not saying it won't come back. I'm not saying it's gone forever. I'm not saying I should ever want it to be gone forever because I feel like their reality and the the love and the pain and the remembrance that I have of them is something that I kind of hold dear to my heart. It's just the idea and the lens that needs to shift for me. Because I don't think I'm quite at the celebration stage yet. I'm not. I'm not at the celebration stage because there were young men just like me. Those were my brothers that I was there with. I left hours before and I never saw them again, my family members. But I think the thing that really gets me to come back and I can find some solace in is the fact that how God situated me and my family and my friends throughout the whole entire time. If I think about, it, I had loved ones and friends, and the amount of support that I had was unbearable. It was it was something that I could have never imagined. I had a red Raider faithful that 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 was there for me, texting me, calling me, praying for me. They made buttons uh, with my number and their names on them at the funeral there were so many friends so many people so many even randoms that just were impacted by the story at the school there were so many friends so many people flew in for that knew him that 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 talked to him that didn't even know him but again were so impacted by the story the impact that these two people had on not only my life not only my family's life but the world That's where I find solace in. That's where I find peace in. Is that the people that they were, that were so impactful to shake lives in their small sample size, that they were here on this earth. That's how I want to be remembered. When I think of their passing, I think of what if I was, what if it was three for three? It was all of us that went. It's not like I don't think of it as, oh, how would they love me? Would they love me the same? No, I don't think about that. I think of it in the opposite sense. I think of how my friends, my family, and my loved ones feel when I'm gone. What am I doing now that will inspire and motivate and empower my loved ones, my family, my friends to live on without me, to live this life without me when I'm gone? How am I inspired? How am I impacting lives? So that when I'm gone, they can look at it as, you know, a the OT situation to where it's like, wow, they impacted so many lives. They taught me so many lessons about this life. And there's so little time on this earth. What am I doing to influence people around me in that way? Because Once I'm gone, that's all I could ask for. That's all I would want my family and my friends and my loved ones to feel. I want them to feel empowered, that they can step into who they are and serve others and love others and live, love, and laugh and create and build on the relationships and and the passion for themselves, for Christ, and showcase that love throughout this world. That's what I want to leave for everybody around me. We all love cheese sosa, we do it off a salsa. we all love che sosa, we do it off a salsa. we all love cheese sosa, we do it off a salsa o t ot, there's always much love when you know, ot, I pray you made it home in one piece, I pray, I pray, rest in peace, little cuz Sosa. Rest in peace, O.T. September boys forever. Love you both i I see you next time. Thank you guys so much for listening to my story. If you found value from this story or find yourself in my story, please leave a review, rate it. It means so much again for the Bully Podcast. Till next time, peace and love me to you episode 7